This is Science Moab, a radio show exploring science and learning about the scientists from the Colorado Plateau. I'm Christina, and on today's show, we explore mammals living at the time of dinosaurs with Dr. Brian Davis. We look at what they were like, how they interacted with the dinosaurs around them, and how they eventually turned into us. It's a good show. Stay with us. Having an appreciation for deep time really makes the world extra beautiful and fascinating. You know, some people might think that it marginalizes people, but it really puts us into a, as you know, it puts us in our place as a as a small cog in this enormous machine that's just been churning along for billions of years. And uh, you know, these landforms are going to be there long after we we're gone, uh, which is really cool to think about. Today we're talking about mammals that lived during the time of dinosaurs with Dr. Brian Davis. Dr. Davis is a paleontologist studying mammals during the Mesozoic period. He looks at the evolution and ecology of mammals that lived alongside dinosaurs and how these mammals evolved over time to eventually become us. Here we talk about what mammals would have looked like, how they interacted with dinosaurs, and some of the work Dr. Davis is doing exploring prehistoric mammal fossils found right outside of Moab. So you study mammals. Right. And you study mammals that lived during the time of dinosaurs. Right. Those poor guys must are pretty overshadowed in popular culture. <laughs> oh, no, they, they sure are. Um, and I don't know, I, I would probably be lying if I um, said that wasn't some part of the my early drive and my interest in, in early mammals, um, you know, Lots of people are excited about dinosaurs. Now, I was one of those kids, you know, from the age of four that was excited about dinosaurs and never really grew out of it. Uh, I see that now with my boys um, at home. But uh, I pretty early on um, split off and developed an interest in early mammals. They're a real challenge to find. They're uh, most known by, by teeth and isolated little bits, but the fossils that we do have, um, I find them just really pretty. You're looking at a lot of fossil enamel from you know little bitty molars and they're tiny and complicated and um you know tell uh, tell a, a pretty good story the uh the challenge of finding them and the things they have to tell you know, i think really make them a, a really interesting group to study and they are they are somewhat overshadowed especially during the age of dinosaurs once dinosaurs um go extinct then the story of mammals really picks up as far as uh kind of the popular culture of them they become big and complicated and diverse and uh, ultimately, you know, lead to us, which is the other really great thing about studying mammals. Dinosaurs are big and charismatic and tell an interesting story in and of themselves, but, um, you know, they're only part of the, you know, the ancient landscape, uh, even though they're what most people think of first. You know, mammals, uh, you know, not only lead to us, which is a really intrinsically important reason to study them, but if we're looking at reconstructing an ancient ecosystem, which is the main goal of paleontology, is you know learning about the past. Dinosaurs, just like today, the, the big animals really only tell us part of the picture. Um, there's quite a bit more to learn by looking at the little things. 
you go on a safari to Africa and um, everybody's out for the big five, you're looking at the big charismatic megafauna. But if you really want to understand an ecosystem, you have to pay attention to the small stuff, the turtles and the ponds and the lizards and frogs and, uh, of course, mammals. So they're, you know, diverse back in the Mesozoic and they're diverse now. So I find them just really fascinating. Take me back. Tell me, you mentioned the Mesozoic. Can you put that in context for me? of when the Mesozoic was. Sure. So you can generally think of the Mesozoic as the age of dinosaurs. So it uh, includes a couple of geologic periods, starting from the Triassic and, uh, you know, 250 million years ago or so. And then um, there's uh, the Jurassic, which is kind of the heyday of dinosaurs. Uh, And then the Cretaceous. Uh, And the end of the Cretaceous is punctuated by that uh, that uh, meteor impact and some major climate changes and uh, you know of course a big extinction event and that was about 66 million years ago so we're talking about a time span of almost 200 million years you get the first dinosaurs and the first mammals as fossils at about the same time really um, which surprises a lot of people mammals and dinosaurs both show up um, you know roughly 230 million years ago or thereabouts and uh, they coexisted um, mammals may not have competed directly quite all that much with dinosaurs uh, that may be why they did well they kind of stayed out of the way and you know exploited niches that dinosaurs which were pretty much um, uh, without exception bigger and very different ecologically uh, weren't weren't really interested in yeah you can you can think of the mesozoic as the age of dinosaurs but there's quite a bit happening um with you know other major groups of vertebrates around the world and uh, the story of mammals really picks up uh at about the same time as the story of dinosaurs Uh, it's just sort of a, a hidden part of their history because they stayed small um and there's probably lots of good reasons for that but they were you know just as diverse and interesting in a lot of ways as they are um later in their history can you tell me about what some of them look like? Yeah, well, so, you know, they were mostly small. Um, some fossil mammals that we have probably rival some of the smallest living mammals. These things may have weighed um, just a couple of grams, you know, less than a, than a pocket full of change. And they probably would have looked like, you know, a little shrew or a mouse kind of creature, um, mostly insectivorous for the most part. Uh, very small um, Generalized in their habits, uh, in in most cases, little things that would have scurried around. Um, probably somewhat nocturnal, but uh, early on in their history, during the Jurassic, even so, you know, 170, 160 million years ago, mammals uh, started experimenting, experimenting ecologically. You start seeing these um, these uh, really ancient groups. These are some groups of mammals that that um, left no descendants. They're not related in any way close to um, modern mammals, uh, but some of them have um, uh, fossilized skin flaps along their, the flanks of their body, so that maybe they were gliding like a modern flying squirrel. Yeah, some of them have uh, uh, wide uh, tailbones and um, evidence of a thick uh, pelt, and they may have uh, been semi-aquatic like an otter or even a beaver, which is really cool. There are some that have really heavy forelimbs, and they would have burrowed in uh, just like a mole or an armadillo. Maybe they would have been um, very hard to tell from modern moles or armadillos. And we've get, we get some that... Um, uh, were for all the world like a modern rodent with chewing and you know, gnawing incisors and uh, multi-cusped teeth 
to shred plants and squish up seeds and things like that. And uh, we even find gnaw marks and dinosaur bones from these little guys, That's just like cool. you'd see on you know you pick up an, an elk an elk uh, bone in the in the woods and you'll see little gnaw marks on them. So we have little mammals doing the same thing to the dinosaurs, uh, which is really cool. Now there are some cases where mammals did get big. And it's always in a relative sense. Um, a big mammal today, you may think of an elk or a bear. A big mammal during the age of dinosaurs would be like a raccoon or a badger, about that size. Okay. That's about as big as they got. And uh, they probably were just as mean as a badger. Um, <laughs> uh, there's a mammal that's been found from the uh, early Cretaceous of China about 125 million years ago. Big, heavy skull, big, sharp teeth. And uh, there were the remains of some baby dinosaurs in its belly, which is cool. Because cool. most mammals ended up as you know lunch for dinosaurs, it's kind of fair that there was a little bit of turnabout. Yeah. So is so, that is that most of the interaction between dinosaurs and these mammals? Just like the dinosaurs mostly are eating them. Probably. Yeah. They're you know bite sized. They probably would have been abundant. You know, relatively speaking, like modern mammals were. So pretty large populations because they were small and probably didn't live very long. You know, maybe uh, a year or two would be an average lifespan of these things. Um, because they were just, they were, they were food. So they were mostly small and that, you know, but we, it's, it's hard to really study, um, interactions between animals in the fossil record. You have to really get, uh, a rare snapshot. Finding stomach contents is often about as, about as much as we can tell about how different species interact. We do find, uh, dinosaurs with mammal fossils in their belly. So we know that happened and that makes a lot of sense. But to see dinosaurs inside of a mammal is, is always really interesting. How are landforms positioned at this time? Yeah, good question. Um, so uh, everyone's familiar with the layout of the continents today. And uh, back in the age of dinosaurs, it was quite different. So uh, when mammals and dinosaurs were kind of entering their heyday during the Jurassic, uh, we just start seeing the breakup of Pangaea, so the supercontinent. All the, co- all the modern continents are united into one big landmass. Um, that starts to break apart during the Mesozoic with uh, the northern continents, which are grouped as a kind of a supercontinent called Laurasia. They sort of, the modern-day northern continents, North America and Europe and Asia, they tend to stay north. They don't move a whole lot north and south. Um, And the southern continents uh, were united in a a mass called Gondwana, and they sort of stay south. Um, But that's they start drifting apart uh, during the Mesozoic, driven mostly by the opening of the Atlantic Ocean. So you can look at a paleo map and you see this blue crescent between North America and Africa and Europe, um, basically, uh, start to push those two land masses apart. What tends to happen is you take, if you have a big continent, all the animals are free to wander around and mix. And you tend to get relatively low diversity on, on big land masses. Some animals do really well and they tend to outcompete. Um, there's no, no, not as much specialized habitat when you have islands. So... Once that supercontinent starts to break up, then you start getting uh, all these independent trajectories that the animals take on their own little landmass as it drifts away. These are both mammals and dinosaurs. Yes, this is sort of a global event. You start seeing um, differences between northern uh, faunas and southern faunas, uh, where we have records for it. So we still, our, our picture is somewhat um, complicated by how incomplete the fossil record is. We don't have uh, good samples from every time period, from every place on the Earth. We're limited to what, to where those are the rocks of the right age and the right environment are. But you start seeing some significant differences in the North and the South. And then you get these brief periods where there's land bridges that open up and you can, you all of a sudden see some Asiatic uh, animal showing up in the North American fossil record. Or you see something from South America showing up in North America or vice versa. 
tell me a little bit about the fossil record. So you you mentioned it briefly, but why? What conditions make it so that fossils exist? Yeah. So uh, things are out there living and dying all the time. Um, so the first thing you need is for something to die, which is unfortunate. But if we need a fossil, that's where you start. Um, now, where something dies has everything to do about its chances of becoming a fossil. Um, something dies in the middle of the woods where lots of animals live or in the middle of a prairie or in the middle of the desert. Um, chances are good that it's never going to become a fossil. What you need is something to die and for it to become buried immediately. Um, the longer any, something is left out in the open, the more exposed it is to scavengers or just natural breakdown from the environment. Um, and if you're talking about something small and delicate, like a, like a fossil mammal, um, you need to, it needs to happen even faster. Um, so we tend to have a bias in the fossil record towards um, aquatic environments because the easiest way to bury something is by uh, it, you know, falling into a river and being buried by channel sediment or um, dying on the edge of a river and it's, it's been buried by you know, the seasonal flooding event, dumping a bunch of mud on top. Or something dies in, on the edge of a pond and is washed in and buried in sediment. Um, we tend to get um, good preservation in environments like that where water can quickly bury stuff with um, sediment. Um, so we tend to also have a bias in the record towards animals that are already there. So, um, you know, aquatic animals like fish and turtles and crocodiles and things like that. So animals that are strictly terrestrial, uh, like most mammals and small dinosaurs, um, are usually underrepresented, not because they may have been rare, but because mm. they we're less likely to end up in the conditions you need for fossilization. So the right environment is really important. Um, and then it helps to have hard parts. Um, not every part of an animal has an equal chance of being fossilized, even if it ends up in the perfect um, conditions. Uh, animals that um, are ready-made fossils, like turtles, for example. Turtle shells are great fossils. We find them, find them a lot. Fish like gar with really heavy scales, those tend to show up really well. Uh, and then, then large animals with heavy bones, crocodiles, things like that. Um, little delicate things like frogs and lizards and mammals, um, not so much. Um, what we do find are the parts of the animals that are especially hard. And for mammals, that means enamel from teeth. So the enamel in your teeth are the hardest part of your body. Uh, they're, they're made for durability. And that includes the, you know, the, the heavy um, wear that something gets when it's becoming fossilized. So we tend to have an abundance of information about the teeth of mammals, uh, mostly because that's what's preserved. Their bones are delicate. Teeth tend to survive better. So most of our record comes from teeth and then the heavy jaw bones that hold teeth together. And the same is true for other things with teeth. We know a lot about you know, dinosaur teeth if they're small. Larger animals were more likely to get heavy you know, limb bones and things like that. So, uh, yeah, the, the becoming a fossil is certainly a, a, a non-random event um, in that the right conditions have to be there. And then to actually find a fossil, you know, the hills are full of fossils, but if the hill is covered in grass or a Walmart parking lot, then we're never going to find anything in there. The fossils then, the rocks they're in need to be exposed. You don't just randomly go and find a patch of dirt and start digging in it. Geologists have done most of the hard work in terms of mapping the almost the whole surface of the earth. So we know how old and in what kind of environment almost any outcropping of rock um, records. So if you're interested in looking for early mammals, then you find a, um, let's say, a Jurassic exposure from a terrestrial environment, and you go to where those rocks are. And it might be a place like Utah, which is covered in exposed rock, or uh, back east, you might find a road cut where um, a highway crew has done the work of exposing the rock for you. So it, there's a lot of luck in terms of what gets exposed. 
Um, but it's not really a random event, um, what becomes a fossil. That answers my question. I was going to ask you why, especially this area is so good. Utah's great. Utah is, um, it, it's got exposures of, of lots of the rockiness in the ages and environments that I'm interested in, but not just me, lots of people. You get uh, just a huge um, sampling of, of Earth history in Utah. You can, um, just in, in, in this immediate area, what comes to mind, you can um, easily sample uh, the Triassic Chinle Formation, which goes way, way back, uh, really colorful, brightly striped uh, rocks, uh, you know, 230, 240 million years ago. Um, all the way up through um, you know, most of the Jurassic and into uh, large parts of the Cretaceous. Uh, so there's just a huge slice of time available in the rocks that are exposed. Almost no matter what, what animal group you're interested in working on, you're likely to be able to find fossils somewhere, I mean, somewhere in the state of Utah and, and even around, around the Moab area. Uh, so it's, it really is just a paradise for, for paleontology. It makes just looking at our rocks even cooler. Oh sure, yeah. You know, there's there's stuff there's stuff out there. You know, there's a lot of luck. It, you know, experience plays a big part on knowing where to go and having a search image for you know what to look for when you're looking for fossils. Um, but the uh, there's a lot of you know serendipity. You have to just look down at the right right time at the at the right patch of rock. And um, people out hiking turn over all kinds of cool stuff. So, I mean, I would encourage anybody with some sort of interest in, in rocks to keep their eyes peeled because you never know what you're going to find. And if you do find something, then you tell, tell somebody who can, you know, find a paleontologist. You know, having, having all these great federal agencies around town um, makes, makes it a, a big help um, because they're all plugged into a, a network of, of scientists that'll, you know, know what to do with just about anything you can find out there. And then, you know, everything stays safe and becomes, you know, useful for, you know, improving our understanding of the past. So you mentioned that mostly what you find are teeth and animal and jaws. Mm-hmm. What kind of information can you get from those parts? So uh, the great thing about teeth and a mammal, um, one of the things that mammals do better than any other group of vertebrates is chew, which sounds a little strange, but it's a really a mammal thing. You watch a documentary of you know, wildebeest crossing the, you know, some river in Africa, and one of them gets tagged by a crocodile. They just sort of tear the thing apart and swallow it in chunks. There's nothing very graceful about it. But mammals, on the other hand, um, have these intricately interlocking um, uh, teeth, uh, and we use them to chew, just like Mom says. You chew your food, right? So you chew, you chew your food, and uh, this was really important for early mammals because um, they're these tiny little super hot engines that need fuel constantly. So um, every extra calorie you can extract out of a beetle um, is you know, a better chance of making it through the night. So their little teeth are great at, at smushing beetles and bugs and all kinds of stuff and fitting together precisely. So the better you chew your food on the front end, the more efficient you're going to be able to extract nutrition from that food. So um, not only are mammal teeth durable, so we find them in the fossil record, they also have a really specific shape, and they don't tend to change during the animal's life or even vary a whole lot within an individual species. So you can pretty readily figure out what kind of animal you're looking at from its teeth. And uh, the teeth function together in a pretty specific and predictable way, so you can get a pretty good idea about what that animal ate. So you can understand diet based on the size of the animal and the way the teeth work together. Um, there's not much difference between something that eats insects and something that eats, you know, other larger vertebrates. It, usually that's just scaling based on body size. Um, but we can get a pretty good idea about what, what, what things ate based on their teeth. And you can even uh, measure, uh, measure some of the mineral content in teeth and get some idea about, 
where in the environment the food might have been coming from. Um, you can understand some aspects of their um, life history by measuring some of the little isotopes that are in their teeth. It's possible to track and predict when a mammal um, was nursing and then was weaned based on the mineral content of their teeth, switching from milk back to regular food, uh, which is super interesting. So even though we're only finding teeth from these ancient mammals, you can make you know some predictions based on studying modern mammals, how long they stayed in the den, uh, if they had, you know, how much parental care they would have had, things like that. So there's actually quite a bit you can learn about teeth or learn from teeth about an animal. Now we do have some better fossils. Um, there are, you know, there's, there are several groups um, that are known by, by complete skeletons, really itty bitty complete skeletons, things that would, you could fit a whole, whole bunch of them in the palm of your hand, really small animals. Um, it's just rare to get a really nice skeleton that's also, um, you know, three-dimensionally preserved. Um, you have these lake deposits, um, uh, especially in places in China where you can get complete little little feathered dinosaurs and um, complete mammals of all different stripes. Um, they often end up sort of squished in these lake deposits, so they're, they're almost two-dimensional, um, but you can still understand quite a bit about their, uh, quite a bit of their anatomy. Uh, so it's super rare and exciting when we have the opportunity to study a you know, three-dimensional skull of an early mammal, um, but they are out there. In fact, we're finding some of them here in town, just about you know, a little bit north of here, this new site that we're working. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so this is a site um, along the Colorado, Colorado River that um, we found on the very last day of the field season in 2015. All the good stuff always happens on the last day before you have to turn around and go home. It, um, it's in the uh, Upper Jurassic Morrison Formation. So let's see around here. Um, as you are uh, driving north out of town before you get to the interstate, you can see off in both directions sort of colorful striped hills of purples and reds and grays. Uh, that's the Morrison Formation. And uh, it is, of course, famous for producing or for yielding some of the, the big, um, uh, you know, charismatic dinosaurs like Allosaurus and Stegosaurus and Apatosaurus. And Dinosaur National Monument is um, the quarry faces in the Morrison Formation. So it's very famous for that. Um, but it's also famous for, for yielding the first, uh, first Jurassic mammal from the United States uh, back uh, back in the 1870s. So it's a unit that's been worked um, pretty heavily uh, all over the West, from Montana down to um, New Mexico, uh, for you know almost a century and a half. So we're uh, we've we know a lot about the mammals in the Morrison. It's got the probably the most diverse um, Jurassic mammal uh, fauna from anywhere in the world. Uh, it's about 150 million years old. As with most early mammals, the record is chiefly teeth and jaws. But there are places in the Morrison where we find much more complete um, little bitty things. This site looks like it's going to be one of those. Uh, there aren't very many like it. Um, there are some sites in Dinosaur National Monument where we find complete stuff, uh, delicate little partial skulls of tiny little mammals. Um, the most famous of these sites is um, above Fruta, so the Fruta Paleo area that some people are probably familiar with. is famous for producing nice, uh, nicely preserved small stuff. Very little big stuff, mostly small stuff. And this site so far has been like that. The rocks look a lot like the rocks in Fruta, so I'm, um, I'm hopeful that we'll have just as much luck in finding little stuff. Um, we've already found um, a partial skull of, a, of what is one of the smallest dinosaurs in the world. It's this little bitty um, herbivorous thing called a Frutidens. It would have been about the size of a house cat. 
And that's so far is the biggest great. animal we found, which is great. Uh, we found uh, uh, a couple partial mammal skulls, some little bits of lizards. Um, we have a fossil snake. There's all sorts of cool stuff. Very cool. Um, so uh, we worked it a little bit last summer, and um, we just opened the site up again the beginning of this week. So we're, we're early in the work on the site. Sometimes it takes years before sites really give you an idea about how productive they're going to be. But so far, we've had a really good start. And uh, this season already, we've we found little little bits of lizards and um, uh, who knows what else. And you find things in the field, and it often takes a little bit of poking under a mi- under a microscope with a needle uh, before you really know what you have. And um, things get found by accident. So again, serendipity plays a big part on on what we recover from fossils. What got you interested in studying these mammals? So I. You know, I was one of those kids that was really into dinosaurs, and I uh, was lucky in having parents that, that, you know, that promoted my interest in natural history. So I spent a lot of time in summers at museum programs and things like that, and all the places I lived back east. I ended up, when I was in high school, volunteering at the Carnegie Museum in Pittsburgh, just doing, just doing lab work, sorting through you know, buckets of rocks and fossils and pulling out the fossils. Uh, I was pulling out little bitty mammal teeth and all that kind of stuff. So that was my first sort of experience with the fossils. But I was fortunate enough to be invited on to do field work that summer. And uh, we went out to work in um, the uh, Paleocene of um, southwestern Wyoming, quarrying little mammal jaws. But it just turned out that I ended up matching my interests with these opportunities and then you know as I moved around and went to college and you know, I got, got sort of hooked up with various people in the places I was in and had the opportunity to do projects or volunteer and it, I was able to always find an early mammal person to work with so I basically knew what I wanted to do almost immediately you know from the summer after my freshman year I was out in Montana looking for early mammals and, I mean, I've never wanted to do anything else, probably since I was, you know, 15 years old. Uh, so, um, yeah, I really can't imagine, you know, doing really anything else. It's, it's, it's really a crime that I'm able to come out here and call it work. Um, yeah, so I really am I'm really lucky in that regard. What do you enjoy about being a scientist? Yeah, so um, I really can't imagine looking at the natural world and and having anything but awe and wonder about how it all came about. You know, the the sequence of events that led to, you know, the the evolution of, of the first mammals and how they managed to survive the extinction event. These are all things that you can you have to, you know, look into a museum collection or be in the field looking at the rocks to to really um, understand. But when you think about you think about things in a you know in a very process driven way natural way you know driving through any part any 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 place in utah and looking at how the rocks are folded and um uh how they change color and composition as you're going down the interstate um thinking about the amount of time and forces that were at work to craft our landscape i mean um having an appreciation for deep time really um makes the world extra beautiful and fascinating because it you know it almost uh you know some people might think that it marginalizes people but it really puts us into a as you know it puts us in our place as a as a small cog in this enormous machine that's just been churning along for billions of years 
And, uh, you know, these landforms are going to be there long after we, we're gone, uh, which is really cool to think about. So having this sort of natural history view of the world, you turn on any animal show and you you look at something some cool bug does in the rainforest and you think, boy, the um, things that must have fallen into place to allow that to evolve when in any other environment that thing would be would be lunch for somebody. It really it, it, it makes a, uh, just a, a great perspective to look at nature and, you know, even things like like the rocks on the side of the highway. So I, I can't I, I, I think looking at the world from a scientific perspective is um, just makes it all the more beautiful. You can listen again to Science Moab on KZMU.org or by downloading the Science Moab podcast on iTunes. The music for our show is written by Jeremy Spaulding, and the show is produced by Christina Young and KZMU.